it. You could have let it. Let me laugh over it if you wanted to. <laughs> Harry, Harry ain't really here today. It's Friday. We've been together all week. <laughs> okay. The wheels keep turning. All right. Well, it's 10 o'clock. And you know if it's 10 o'clock, it's time for Love Babs Love Talk on 103.5 FM WNHH. Live streaming on the New Haven Independent.org. And live streaming on Facebook, too. New Haven Independent Facebook. So my dear friend, Jeff Grant, is in the house today. What's happening? You have to get closer to the mic. I got to get closer. There I am. Hey, there you Babs. go. What's happening? Hey, it's good to see you. It's nice to see you. Yeah. So I was talking about you all week because I know you're coming in here to catch me up on matters of reentry. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them in the state. I know. Yeah. So are you going over to the Yale Mass Incarceration Conference? Um, I don't think so today. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a little sick, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I think I'm going to... Uh, Hit the office for a little while and go back to bed. So what's new? What's going on? Hey, Andrew, I know if you're listening, I'm not going not gonna to shout you out too much, Andrew, but I know, you know, you're part of this band. So, hey. <laughs> so, um, you know, things, things are kind of popping around the state. What's um, happening? Um, a bunch of us uh, from family reentry. Oh, since I was last here. Yeah. I got um, appointed as executive director of family reentry, the uh, nonprofit serving uh, criminal justice community. Yeah. So that's big news. Yes, it's big news. And um, I know we've had lunch since then, uh-huh. but I uh, haven't been on the air since then. And um, so that's, uh, you know, that's pretty much a full time gig. You know, um, we're uh, based in Bridgeport, mm-hmm. but we have offices in uh, New Haven. And I know Norwalk. you're next door to me in New Haven. That's right, exactly. In uh, up in the um, Fifth per- Street, yep. in, the per- in the parole building. Yes, <laughs> I know. It feels like it, right? It is a parole building. Yeah. So, and um, you know, th- things are, are are happening really well there in terms of um, our outreach, our advocacy. Uh huh. Um, we were up in the state capitol two days ago um, testifying before the appropriations committee for this new budget. Okay. That you know, are you? What are you worried? I mean, because you guys already took a hit. We took a big hit last year, but it looks like we're going to do okay this year. You really? Know? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And um, but the senators there and the appropriation committee were uh, grateful we were there. We actually were the only contingent from Bridgeport to go up and spend the evening there. So uh, I think we made a. You know, a statement about uh-huh. our, about our um, you know our intentions and our willingness to collaborate and the respect that we show the state legislature because you know yeah these are all good intended people and and they're trying to do the best they can but it's a pretty nasty fiscal situation that's going on in the state right now yeah I mean this is t- I mean but it's going to get worse I think before it gets better yeah I I, I think that this uh, this budget cycle is going to be tough. But at family reentry, you know, we've uh, we've balanced the budget. We've made the cuts we need to make. All of our programs now are intact. We have uh, we're the strongest we've been in years, probably. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're looking at a lot of um, private money so we can do uh, public-private partnerships, which we think is the wave of the future. Yeah, I you would know. say so. Yes, you know, and um, I think that if we show the good faith to the state that we're willing to step up and. Um, be advocates for social change and get program dollars in from the private sector that maybe in the next budget cycle. So two years from now, they'll be willing to at least meet us halfway. And, mm-hmm. and we, we feel good about that, you know? Okay. Yeah. You know, so the, you're happy over there I mean, you feel purposeful and you know, 
Well, Babs, when I was sitting in prison 10 years ago, <laughs> I would say the last thing that I would have guessed was that first of all, I would be, I would go to a seminary and become a minister, right? <laughs> then spend two years in the inner city in Bridgeport at the first Baptist church and then be uh, appointed the first person in the country who served time for a white collar crime to be appointed as executive director of a major criminal justice agency. So I'm, mm. I feel blessed um, about that. Well, I mean, you have a skill set, right? Like you're not just some, you know, whatever. I mean, you got, you've got real skill set and reasoning ability, uh, uh, reasoning ability and talent. So that's not a hard choice, right? Well, I think that anyone who comes out of prison finds it hard to get a job. Get oh, a career I know. Going. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know this radio gig probably doesn't pay much, but um, I'm, I'm not different than anyone else. You know, mm -hmm. I had to spend 10 years rebuilding my credibility and my bio and yeah. doing a lot of volunteering, yeah. you know, yeah. and yeah. Um, having faith, you know, one step at a time and just um, not trying to control the outcome so much, just do the next right thing. Mm -hmm. And things came to me. I'm like, for example, when I applied to seminary, I was two years out of prison at the time, and I had been volunteering in um, Stanford and then in Bridgeport for family reentry. And and it, uh, my calling came to me to, um, and kind of a in a faith journey, really, to apply to seminary. And I, I didn't really know what I was going to do or what I was going to do with it. I had this kind of small little piece of an idea there that. Um, maybe there could be a, a ministry for um, white collar criminals and their families, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really fully developed. Mm -hmm. And I applied to Union Theological Seminary in New York, which is probably the preeminent urban seminary in the in the country, maybe the world. Very, very liberal, very progressive. And um, when I filled out that application, it was the first time that I had told my complete story anywhere and I had to do it in writing because I had to, I had to be honest with them and um, I was completely honest and they, um, they accepted me. So it was really the, like post prison. The first time I felt a sense of acceptance and warmth mm -hmm. and uh, I went there for three years. That's a good while. That's a yeah. good amount of time. Yeah, it was full time for three years. Wow. You know, I worked uh, all during. But, I mean, I knew this part of your story, but I didn't know it was for that long. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, it's up in Morningside Heights, which um, 120th in Broadway. Mm -hmm. And so I would take the train. Now, we were living in Greenwich at the time in a little uh, apartment by the train station. And I would take the train down to 125th Street and then hustle across town. <laughs> it depends on the weather, you know. On a nice day, I would walk it. On uh -huh. a nasty day, I would wait for the, uh, I think, the M120. Okay. You know, which coming That's from the La bus, right? The bus coming yeah. come across town from LaGuardia Airport. Yes, and um, it was a gr it was a great experience, you know. And I learned a lot about advocacy and activism and uh, kind of a, a different look at what ministry is really about. You know, I I grew up uh, as you know, I grew up Jewish, mm -hmm. and I um, became baptized um, in around 2010, I'm not sure exactly if it's 2010 or 2011, but certainly during my seminary uh, journey. And I consider myself a double belonger. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't make that term up. I, I, think, I think my professor, Paul Knitter, Paul Knitter might have made up that term, I'm not sure. So you're just covering all your bases. Yeah, well listen, 
<laughs> Actually, it depends which room I'm in. Uh, okay. You, you know what I mean? It's like uh, not everybody uh, not everybody digs that. But do you do you feel Jewish? Sure, of course I feel Jewish. Okay. I mean, I'm and the the basis of my personal theology is probably embedded in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And I grew up you know, I grew up Jewish. I grew up on Long Island as a <laughs> Jewish kid on Long Island and did everything that kids on Long Island do, you yeah. know, drinking and drugging and trying to avoid going to synagogue, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, you know, when I was young, my parents would drop us off uh, for Hebrew school. We would wait for the car to leave and then we would walk up the block to the bowling alley. Oh. Oh, yeah, go bowling and then come back in time for when the Hebrew school let out. <laughs> yeah. So, just, so, you know, picking up that 10 pin. <laughs> but we um it, it really was a, a different experience in seminary than i expected and i know you and i have talked a lot about our faith journeys and, mm-hmm. and um at uh your church here on uh, whaley avenue right or, uh, uh whitney and cold spring oh yeah whitney and cold church spring. of the redeemer exactly i love that church i do too yeah um is marilyn there anymore no you know what she she got a calling to another church yeah, to be a pastor I think it's in Ansonia. Yeah, it's up there somewhere, up Route Eight somewhere. Yeah, yeah, somewhere. Yes, I can't. I can't call the name of it, but she's doing well. I saw her. She came to Redeemer for. She came to visit um, for something. I, I can't remember what it was. I think it was maybe a prayer service for like I don't know whatever. And there's so many prayer services right now because of everything that's going on in the world. Well, but, she, well she's a beautiful person. She and, is, and, and it's it's actually the type of person that in some ways I don't understand. Because she's given herself over to ministry uh, for criminal justice. Yeah. And she's never been to prison. And as far as I know, she doesn't have a direct family member in prison. So, I mean, what a what a wonderful heart and an open spirit she has. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I hadn't been to prison and it wasn't part of my story, I don't know <laughs> that I would be doing prison ministry. You know, I, I don't know. I'd probably be in real estate still. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, so, um, do you think you might want to go back to real estate ever, ever? Never. No, no. Well, you know, that, that rah, rah, go, go life as a lawyer and real estate and all those other things I was doing almost killed me. Mm -hmm. So uh, unless I have a death wish, I don't think I want to go back to, (laughs) uh, I I was making a lot of money, but it was, it was really corrupting my spirit. Yeah. And uh, I don't accuse anybody of anything, you know, for some people, I'm sure they're making a lot of money and, and they're living a good life or a righteous life. Um, I don't, I, you know, I can't look inside anyone else's house, but in my house, um, you know, I wasn't well balanced and it, it, um, it, it hurt me. And, and um, so obviously I, in my story, you know, I wound up, um, you know, going to prison for a white collar crime mm-hmm. and that was uh, probably occasioned by the desperation and the need to pay the mortgage and pay all those people who were working for me and the uh, 10 years of prescription painkillers that I was on that completely eroded my judgment. And, uh, you know, I think back, it's almost like a dream. Yeah. And, you know? I, yeah, I, I certainly understand that. <laughs> I certainly understand yeah. that. So, you know, um, so right now, as you know, what we have is we have uh, two projects going on, Family Reentry, which is my day job. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, mostly an inner city project. I would say that uh, most people are from um, uh, 
the kind of uh, impoverished or, or racially inju- racial injustice kind of areas where they really didn't have a an opportunity to have a, a start in life. Um, you know, they grew, a lot of them grow up with one parent families and poor education systems and not access to health care and all kinds of problems that you have in the inner city. And, uh, and so um, they wind up on the track to go to prison, but it's our, um, it's, it's my personal mission and certainly the mission of family reentry to give them uh, to work on the community and the family issues so that they don't have the problem to begin with, mm-hmm. you know, give them a first chance. I mean, we're here, you know, we're here sitting here talking about a second chance and uh, in this state and what, what do we do for people when they come back from prison? But wouldn't it be great if we actually focus some attention on what and strengthening these communities and families so maybe they don't have to go to prison to begin with? Yeah, that's a good point. And I don't know if we're ever going to be having that conversation. But uh, if you just tuned in, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy and I'm talking to my friend Jeff Grant, the executive director of uh, Family Reentry. And you're listening in on 103.5 FM, WNHH, live streaming on newhavenindependent.org and live streaming on Facebook. So if you're watching us, there's Jeff, <laughs> here's me. <laughs> it's, it's the time lag getting me. I know, it's funny. Yeah. So Jeff, um, do you have any concerns about this political climate? Yeah, of course I do. Like, is anybody like, I mean, I don't think anybody's talking directly about, well, let me, let me, let me say this. I hear rumors that whatever whatever Obama did to sort of start the beginning of shutting down for-profit prisons, the opposite is happening now. They're starting to amp those back up. I, I read that in the paper just uh, this morning, I think. Um, in, in a way, in a way I, I feel like it's kind of a, uh, a misdirection play because, um, again, you and I both know that all prisons are really for-profit prisons. <laughs> I mean, they're they're there to you know the prison industrial complex, even for public prisons, is there to basically make money on the backs of people. Yeah. So you know it's the new Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander put it, and um, and it, we we know it's true. So uh, I think that enlightened criminal justice reform means that um, what we're going to do is we're going to lower pr- prison populations. And what we should be doing is justice reinvestment so that, say, for every $100 million you save in a state from reducing the prison population, closing prisons, some percentage of that should go into community-based solutions so that these people who are coming out of prison are going to, be, are going to have the best chance they, they, they can get mm-hmm. of being successful post-prison. But in the current environment, the state wants to save the money, so they are they're reducing the prison population, which is a good thing. But they're not putting a lot of money back into the communities, which is a very bad thing. And um, I think that we have a right to be concerned because the 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 worst thing possible can be is that we've let people out of prison, and they don't have access to um, um, substance abuse counseling, he- mental health counseling, or other wraparound services. And so a job, a house, housing, (laughs) yeah. and then what choice do they have but go back to the old behavior that sent them to prison in the first place? Mm -hmm. And uh, it would be, it'd be very difficult to, for anyone to rationalize after the fact, if somebody got really hurt, there was like another home invasion or there was a, a, you know, a mass uh, killing of some sort 
and from someone who wouldn't otherwise be in prison, and it sets the state back another decade in terms of prison reform. Yeah. But I don't know how that's necessarily avoidable if we don't have these services for people who come out to help them succeed. So do you, I mean, I I, want to believe that we made some inroads and some strides, but, you know, the more I look at this thing, the more I'm like, you know, I, I think our, Attention is often in the wrong places, although you know, New Haven is about to pilot this program that will um, do a couple of things. Um, go into the prisons when people are like a year to six months about to come out and do some kind of counseling, get them prepared to come out. And then um, a connection with the housing authority to provide housing for a percentage of that population to see to, as a pilot to see how it see how that can be helpful and beneficial uh, and I think those I think those are the kinds of partnerships that you were talking about, I think. Yeah, um, that's really the public. Yeah, yes, that's true. Um, I think Mayor Harp here has done a fantastic job in terms of being uh, at the forefront of uh, of prison for a uh, prison um, reform mm-hmm. and criminal justice um, collaboration. Um, the Warren Kimbo project, for example, um, that's chaired, I think, by Earl Bloodworth. Here in here in uh, New Haven, these are it's a um, they have a project to go into the prisons and basically uh, what, what Warren Kimbrough does it takes the the most difficult most at risk prisoners and goes into the prison three or six months in advance. I'm not yeah. sure exactly how much, yep. and it gives them the best chance of success when they come out, and it also convenes a lot of the uh, stakeholders in New Haven who have various prison projects, whether it be um, Easter Seals Goodwill or Family Reentry mm-hmm. or some of the other partners, and gives them a voice and tries to create efficiencies and optimize the results we can get. Because, you know, there's a lot of overlap in, in different nonprofits. The other um, project they have is called Fresh Start, and that was the one that really started it. Now, both of these projects are, are out of the mayor's office. Yes, but, Clifton Graves heads up Fresh Start. That's exactly right. Yeah, and and they handle like the other. I again, the numbers might be off a little bit, but they handle maybe the thirty percent of of people who are the who are the least at risk in terms of their of their release and uh, uh, the least public safety risk. And so, between those two projects, they're capturing a lot of the um, inmates who will become formerly incarcerated persons out on the street mm-hmm. and they're providing a lot of services so uh, you know hats off to new haven for doing that there's other projects in, in other cities that are doing it harford is lifting one off uh, um and so is bridgeport i would say that new haven's been the leader at this but um in bridgeport we have something out of the mayor's office called myra which is the mayor's initiative for reentry affairs and that's chair. Um, that's uh, the liaison there. The program manager is Lewis Reed, mm-hmm. and he's a you know he's a, he's an up and comer. This 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 guy's just fantastic, and um, they've uh, I've been appointed co-chair of the advisory council to Myra. So how's that looking? Like how? I mean, because you know you have a mayor that's formerly incarcerated, <laughs> and uh, he and does he care about reentry? I oh mean, yeah, oh yeah. I think that I think that Mayor Ganim is is really right on top of this now i mean it's a it's a, a big topic for bridgeport you know a lot of returning citizens come home to bridgeport uh-huh. and um in the thousands 
and um, what to do with them and in terms of providing services and trying to help their the success of their reentry is right up there. So to do it on a, on a city by city basis is um, great, probably not optimal in, mm-hmm. in the sense that if the state money's not there, there's a limit to what the city can actually afford to do. The cities are in the same pro have the same problems that the state does in terms yeah. of their uh, financial problem. Yeah. So, so you said the legislators seem to be favorable to, understanding the need for funding reentry programming. Now, if you stuck in a room, the head of uh, CSSD, which judicial branch, you know, court support services, the head of the department of corrections, Scott Semple, mm-hmm. the um, legislature, this legislators, the mayors of the cities and all the nonprofits, everybody would agree as to what's the right thing to do and basically how to do it, but for the fact that there's no money to do it. So we have like wonderful people out there um, who, who really want to invest in criminal justice mm-hmm. reform and, and in under, they all understand, everyone understands the problem, just how to do the workaround because of the um, lack of funds is a, is a little bit different depending on who you talk to because everybody has their own political pressures and they only, and they, and they, um, and they have to answer to different budget constraints and, and work, do the most they can with, with the, a lot less money. So, you know, we certainly understand it and we think that all in all they're great partners, but, um, it, it's, it's a shame the state, the state had a real leadership role in criminal justice reform, not that long ago. And, uh, we were a model state justice reinvestment model and in terms of um, pro-social reforms uh, every a lot the whole country was looking at Connecticut as a leader um, that's probably not the case anymore mm-hmm. and um, you know Connecticut here's really the problem with Connecticut uh, do we have we have time to talk about this yes now? we have time right so so here's the problem with Connecticut as far as I can tell unlike our neighbors to the north and the south uh, Massachusetts has Boston, which is uh, which is wealthy, and New York has New York City, which is wealthy, but Connecticut doesn't have any wealthy cities. The cities in Connecticut are basically where the poverty is. Even if the the core of the city has some business in it, the people who live in most of uh, most of the people who live in these cities are impoverished. So the wealth of in Connecticut is really in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So how do you convince? someone who's living in Greenwich or New Canaan or Darien or, or Westport, that criminal justice is something that they should be cognizant of. And it's, and it, it's really a, um, a complete statewide issue. And that if they don't, um, if, if they're not, if they don't take care of, they don't influence their legislators and they're not willing to fund it, then what they're really doing is hurting everybody, including themselves because of, um, safety issues and because of the tax base and also just humanitarian reasons. I mm-hmm. mean, nobody should have to go to prison because that their, their, their uh, personal family circumstances when they were young um, didn't afford them the other opportunities in life. So they turned to the streets and they turned to the hustle. You know, that's a, that's a hard thing. So, um, you know, our, our, um, our other project that you know about uh, is the progressive prison project or progressive prison ministries and that's uh, a ministry for white collar criminals and their attorney and mm-hmm. their uh, and their um, families. So 
uh, you know, that's a pretty misunderstood um, group of people. I, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. So, so we're, we're, it's a nice conversation between two white collar criminals. But the um, what people are, um, in places like Greenwich or New Canaan or or affluent suburbs, pretty much um, until recently, they didn't really recognize crime in their midst. You know, if you go and went into a church in Greenwich, for example, you would see people who were dressed up nicey nice mm-hmm. to go to um, church on Sundays, but there's people in their community who are. Um, who are suffering because of criminal justice issues, whether it be white collar crime issues or DUI issues, or they're suffering because of substance abuse or mental health issues. And fundamentally the church is set up to be able to help the oppressed. I mean, you know, there's Matthew 25 there. That's what it's about. The, you know, <laughs> you know the, the least of these, but in many of these churches, the most spiritual place in the church is in the AA room downstairs in the basement. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, but I think that's changing. I, I think that even in the affluent communities, they're starting to understand that the constituency in those communities is really different than they would imagine, or the re- the purpose of the church is really more inclusive, and it's it's not good enough in a church, say in Greenwich, to um, to do a midnight run or to write checks for the inner city like in Bridgeport, and that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, and in Bridgeport, because I worked in a church in Bridgeport, we, you know, we in Bridgeport, you don't do outreach, you don't do midnight runs. You're mm-hmm. the church where the midnight runs come to, so it's more like in reach, really. I mean, and you know that. But um, I think that we're starting to make inroads, and we have some partner churches in and around the area. For example, um, Christ Church in Greenwich has accepted us as an outreach ministry. Northfield Congregational Church in Weston. There's two perfect examples of churches that are very socially minded and uh, caring communities and are are starting to open up their doors to be inclusive to everyone. Um, I just, um, in the, in the last few weeks, I, um, I gave workshops at Wilton Presbyterian Mm -hmm. at the Golden Hill Methodist. And what does this workshops look like? Um, It's basically bringing awareness of what the, of what the problems are in, in, in every community and kind of an, on, a, on an egalitarian basis, what it is, what it is to um, have a, an, an accepting and open environment in, in your church in in your, in your local church and in your low and, and be aware, uh, ha, kind of have an authentic ministry to what's really going on in your church. And what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, many of these churches have so-called prison ministries, and I think that's a beautiful thing, but primarily what they are really is uh, chaplaincies. So you know, four or five or six people from the church once a month will go into a um, to a correctional facility and do some kind of program with the inmates for you know twenty or thirty inmates. And I think that's a beautiful thing. But if they're not ministering to the people who are right in their community who are suffering, then they're, they're really missing a, a, an important opportunity and, and a beautiful opportunity because um, they can open their doors and they can be welcoming. And so you can imagine a, um, a woman and her children who are sitting in a, in a house in Greenwich and the father has um, been convicted of a white-collar crime and he goes off to prison and they're sitting there in this house and they have no money, 
They're on food stamps. They can't afford to heat the house. They're about to lose the house. So they're just trying to do the best they can with what they have. They've been shunned in the community. The, um, they've been kicked out of their clubs. They've been maybe kicked out of their houses of worship even. If their kids were, say, in private school, the kids can't go to that school anymore. There's no money. And if the kids were in, say, a parochial school, like a Catholic school or something like that, maybe they'll get scholarshiped in, maybe not. So the so the first victims of all of this are really the family. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think people think about that. I don't think people think about beyond the person that committed the crime. They don't. I don't think they do. I think they just think, you know, well, you committed this crime, you get what you deserve. But you never think about all the tentacles that sort of stem from that. Yeah. I you mean, know, family, community, church, uh, whatever, uh, job. Yeah, I mean, even the concept of, of quote-unquote, committing a crime, you know, there's a, a certain amount of randomness to that as to who's going to be prosecuted and who's not going to be prosecuted and what the sentence is going to be and uh, conversation around mandatory minimums and sentencing guidelines and... Uh, prosecutorial misconduct, wrongful conviction, all these things are in there. And um, it's it's unsettled right now. For example, it's even unsettled what the definition is of insider trading is a perfect example of something that um, I, I would think that at least the hedge fund community in around Fairfield County is keenly aware of, but um, nobody knows really what it is. And it's a, <laughs> So it's a it's a line that that keeps 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 moving, and in in some cases you don't know you've crossed it until there's two FBI agents standing on your on your doorstep, mm-hmm. and it could be the same exact thing you were doing five years ago, but five years ago it wasn't a crime, and now it's a crime now. Although the legislature never decided that, somehow it was decided in the court system or something like that, and. Um, or it's the same thing that is going on in at one trading desk, for example, uh, as uh, two trading desks next to each other could be doing the same exact behavior, but only one of them gets prosecuted and the other one doesn't. So it's it, it's very unsettled, and uh, it has a huge effect on the families and the communities. We're trying to bring awareness to that in our progressive progressive prison ministries, and be um, you know be inclusive. Let people know that they're they're not lepers and we can (laughs) and we're all god's children and we can have empathy and compassion for everybody and it's not just you know we we cut people off and um uh, and have them floating off on an ice ice raft because um there but for the grace of god go i anybody it could happen to anybody in some way or another so um i don't think people believe that though i don't think most people believe that they don't they don't believe that anything could happen to them I think people believe you choose, you make a choice to sort of do whatever, and that's because you're whatever. You're weak or you're small or you're greedy or you're unstable. or You know, you're just all these things. And so I don't think people believe that they could find themselves in the bind. But clearly you can't. I mean, I had Norm Pattison yesterday, and, um, and he was talking about, you know, he just defended this case with the, the guy who's, who's sentenced for murdering his baby, tossing it off the oh, bridge. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he sat here and said, he's like, I took that case because, you know, I saw myself in that guy. And I thought, I was like, you? <laughs> you know, I was just stunned. But what the point he was making was that 
anybody could just find themselves in situations. Just you just find yourself in a situation. You well, know. You know, in terms of public awareness and in the and uh, the and the and the way that that people feel about these problems, I think that there's, I think there's just basically two classes of people. And I, I don't, not that there's a class system, but I think there's the man, man or woman on the street. There's a person who really doesn't, you know, just basically goes about their day and they have kids in school or they, and they go grocery shopping or they go to their jobs. And that's, that's that, that type of person. And they're going to have some kind of view towards crime or white collar crime or inner city crime. They're going to have a view about it. And it's going to be um, generally um, a step away from the people who are actually at risk. You know, they're 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 living their their normal lives, and they're probably never going to have a, uh, a crime touch them. Or if it does, it's not particularly in their house. But the people who are the decision makers, the people who are captains of industry, the people who even on the street, the the guys who are you know who have the um, the, you know, the uh, drug gangs or whatever, who, you know, if they're people who are actually involved in that kind of commerce, they know the truth. They know that everyone's potentially one day away from having a policeman knock on your door for something that either you're doing wrong or that someone else thinks you're doing wrong or that maybe there's a little bit of confusion in the law. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing sometimes to mediate as to quote unquote what the right thing is. When you're when you're being asked to um, perform for a boss, for example, who's very very demanding, and wants you to deliver, and wants you to deliver, you know, on profitability, or wants you to deliver on net money to the firm, or even in the inner city, you know, if if you got if, if you're there in the street hustle, you've got a job to do, and. It, that that's your culture that's that's what you were um that's what you were raised on mm-hmm. and um without it uh, they might go hungry so um you know I, I i have a lot of openness in and compassion for everybody mm-hmm. and i think that almost anybody once they've been to prison as you know when they come out um most people i encounter for especially at family reentry in in Bridgeport, which is I where I spend most of my time, they don't, they don't want to go back to being criminals. The last thing in the world they want to do it was terrible. I mean, people did a ten year prison bid. The last thing they want to do is go back to prison. Mm-hmm. And everyone goes through some kind of transformative experience, as you know. Um, but whether or not that they can stay in that long enough to be able to live a um, a, a, a life of um, of providing for their families and providing for themselves without going back to criminal behavior has to do with the amount of opportunities that we will actually provide mm-hmm. for them because of, because the, of the limitation of their, um, of their felonies or their criminal records that allows them to, that prohibits them from being able to work in many, many areas. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Well, um, I, I, I was, I would suspect that um, Ganim, has uh, Mayor Ganim has uh, really elevated um, folks coming out of prison. I mean, he is. I mean, that is that is true reentry at its finest <laughs> to come back and get your life back in such a way, right? Like that's true reentry, I guess. You know, the fact that it's kind of right here, 
like right in Bridgeport. Yeah. And it's it's tangible. It's something we can feel. I mean, like Marion Barry did it in Washington, D.C. Yeah. yeah. There's other places. Yeah, other and, places. And, that, and that, that guy in Toronto who was, you know, uh, up there doing all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> but here we are, uh, like right in Bridgeport. And it's and it, I think it presents itself with a, with a lot of hope. With, you know, um, despite what you, anybody thinks um, Mayor Ganim did or didn't do, and all that winds, always winds up getting distorted in the press, so nobody really knows the story, But um, and I don't either. But I can tell you that for anyone who's come back as strong as he has and have been reelected um, by, by the largest city in Connecticut, um, says something not just about him, which is uh, something positive and hopeful, but also says something about the electorate that they're willing to uh, trust someone again who they may have uh, viewed uh, breached their trust in the, in the past. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, you know, uh, I think that's a wonderful thing. I think so. I mean, it, it really is a true story of redemption. You know, I know people feel some kind of way about it, but I, mean, I don't, I don't really care about that. But on the other end, you have John Rowland, right? Governor John Rowland, uh, who uh, did time, came out, got his life together, was doing whatever, and then got sucked back into some something. And now, has is he in? Is he serving now? I believe he's in prison now. But and how um, much time does he have to do? Not uh, like a couple of years, right? I think at least a couple of years, yeah. maybe more, three or four years. I yeah, think. I think three, three to somewhere between three and five. But he, you know, he's an except. He's really an outlier to all of this because. M- the overwhelming majority of people who are convicted for white collar crimes or who are not going to do it again, they're not going to do it again. And now you could argue that part of the reason they're not going to do it, going to do it again is because they don't have access to the same careers any longer. Yeah. <laughs> but there is that. So, you know, it, it makes you really think about what kind of like a criminal disposition really is. I mean, if you're, are you really predisposed to crime or is it um, really situational? Based upon the things that are in front of you, and whether or not you're um, you got sucked into a, an ecosystem that really is not not healthy, and I can tell you that there's a mm-hmm. there's a lot of examples where um, um, guys it's you know, it's primarily a a, a male dominated um, area the white collar crime, and I can tell you there's a lot of examples where. A guy knows he's in in the midst of of crossing the line, and and he doesn't want to do it, and he, and he's conflicted about doing it. But what happens is that he doesn't have the really the ego strength to walk into his bedroom and say to his wife, "Listen, I, I'm I'm not the man I thought I was, or I'm not capable of of earning money the way I thought I would, or things are not really um, as um, sturdy as as I've represented to you." And so what we need to do here is we need to downsize our life. We need to get more simple. We need to sell this big house, whatever it is. We need to take steps so that I'm, I'm, I'm not perpetuating this, this problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the reasons that they don't do it by and large is because they're insecure and they're afraid that their wives are really only staying with them for their money. And they don't want, they, they don't, they don't want that, conflict to be there because they're afraid that the wife will acknowledge exactly what they're afraid of and then they'll be alone in the world so what happens is is that in their effort to please you know people please or please their wives or please their families or please their employers they wind up pleasing nobody Mm -hmm. and um 
I certainly suffered from that. So I understand it. Um, just a couple of things I want to point out. I want to make sure that everyone knows first for, um, first for people who are, um, have been convicted of white collar crimes and have come back from prison or through their problems in chief, we have an online support group now. Which, yes. Which I haven't been able to tackle. Yeah. It would be nice if you log on. <laughs> But it's Tuesday nights, um, eight, eight o'clock Eastern, and we uh-huh. have people all over the country. We do it on go to meetings, so it's a video conference, and people who've been living in isolation. And we formed a community of um, of formerly incarcerated white collar criminals who um, are finding a lot of comfort and solutions in one another mm-hmm. because um, primarily it's a, a non geographic problem. It's it's not like say walking into an AA room where where everyone has the same problem, but everybody lives in the same town, so they can come together, you know, as physically in that town. But white collar crime is kind of spread out all over the country, and we've helped people in twenty five different states at this point. Oh, so, wow! So gathering them, the only, uh, due to technology, we can actually gather, you know, a cohort and be able to help. Um, the other thing I want to mention at family reentry, which is you know where I spend most of my time now, we have a big event coming up. Yes, and which I, is cool. And I have to pitch this event. Pitch it. Otherwise, Jeffrey Earls, our director of development, will. will hey, Jeffrey Earl, if you're listening. Yeah, he was here. He, uh, I know. I had him on last year. Yeah, yeah. He, well, he look. He's a he's a great man, and um, he's working hard at this. So we have a rock and roll concert, which is <laughs> not your standard Fairfield County fair. You know, we're not doing one of those uptight dinners at the at the Greenwich uh, Hyatt. We're uh, we're doing a rock and roll concert at the warehouse at Fairfield Theater Company Warehouse, and the band we have playing the headline band is called Blue Coop, and it's members of Blue Oyster Cult and the Alice Cooper Band, mm-hmm. and you know they rock. So if you know, so y'all are really gonna do some rock? Yeah, so like you, this is real rock. More, more cowbell, you know. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're if you remember the Alice Cooper song "School's Out" yes. or, or "Billion Dollar Babies" or whatever, or, or uh, Blue Oyster Cult songs like "Don't Fear the Reaper," uh-huh. um, this is the real guys. So, so um, we're excited about that. And, and um, when is that? When is that? That's April thirteenth. Okay. Doors open Thursday night, April thirteenth. Doors open at six thirty. And warming up for them, this is a real treat. Is going to be the School of Rock from Fairfield. So the kids are going to be up there for, you know, however long they're up there for, whatever set they're, they're going to play. And then I, I understand that there's going to be a special encore but, um, gathering the uh, Blue Coop guys, the Alice Cooper guys and the Blue Oyster Cult guys and the School of Rock. And they're going to do something all together for wow, the encore. Wow, this is going to be fabulous. Oh, yeah, it's going to be great. But I'm not, you know, I can't let the cat, the cat out of the bag as to what they're going to be doing for the encore. <laughs> but anyone who knows Alice Cooper songs well enough, you probably can already guess there you go. what they're going to be doing. Oh, this is going to be fabulous. Oh, yeah. I, ho- I hope you'll come. I may try to make that. Yeah, for sure. Get some good rock and roll in my bones. Yeah, the tickets are available um, online on the Fairfield Theater Company website, or you can go to our, our website, familyreentry.org, mm-hmm. and click through. And, um, Get your tickets. Oh, the tickets are starting to go. And the know? weather is so good now that it'll probably be exceptional by then. Oh, yeah. And, so. uh, you know, it could be a rowdy crowd, you know. Oh, we m- like that. Mosh pit, whatever you're going to do. Uh, you know, that might be my fantasy to just like be walked over, you know. A little bit of a fantasy, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I- I- Iggy Pop jumping off the, uh, yes. off the stage and nobody catching like, him. Oh, yeah. I need to be caught, though. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Grant, it's so nice to see you. 
Thank you, Babs. I'm really, really happy. Oh, just let me give you my contact information. It's Jeff Jeff Grant at FamilyRantry.org. Yes. And uh, anybody out there, whether whatever your um, criminal justice issue is, whether or not you want to mentor or you don't donate money, whether you have a criminal justice issue yourself, please get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Jeff Grant at FamilyRantry.org, and our, that's our uh, website as well. Yes. And um, you know, this is our calling in life. So yeah. uh, you know. Whatever the problems are, whatever the issues are, you know, just get in touch. Well, well, it's a pleasure to have you. I know you'll be back. I'm not even listen. This is my friend Jeff Grant, <laughs> executive director of Family Ranchy. He'll be back. He'll be back. So, uh, Harry, thank you. You thank got you. my music. Happy Friday, y'all. up with this book in a little while me and my girls we turned it up last week boys love this club cause ladies get in free we love to party dance all night work all day Fridays here and the week is out the way hit the floor just past 10 Just sexy on and tell them that we're hanging tonight.